work that God has assigned to angels, whether it be in the past, in the Old Testament, whether it be in the life of Christ, in his ministry, whether it be uh, in the life of the early church, or as God will use them in the consummation of the age. And also in our own lives, that uh, God is pleased to use these created beings uh, to use in our lives for our encouragement. The primary work that angels brought, as we see them in Scripture, though, is to bring messages. And certainly as we come to this text this morning, we see that. This morning we'll look at the message of the singular angel. This evening we'll look at the message that the multitude of angels brought to these shepherds. Lord willing, seeing in both not only a call to each one of our hearts, but a reminder of the glorious majesty that is indeed before us as we consider this incarnation of Christ. I want to look at three things from that angel's announcement as we find it, beginning there in verse 10 and following. First of all, the timing of the message. Secondly, the uniqueness of that message. And then thirdly, the content of that message. The timing, the uniqueness, and the content. We can say three things in regards to the timing. When does the angel bring this message? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. When does he bring that message? First of all, we can say that it's at the time of a census. It's at the time of a registration. Older versions or other versions that use the term or idea that this was a taxation or a tax being levied by the, the Romans uh, are, are rather inaccurate in leading us down that. It was a taxing time. It was a difficult time. But we, we really don't seem to have a record that would establish that all those who came had to pay some sort of money at that point in time. It's one of the reasons why people come, who come to Bethlehem alive, we don't charge them to come in. It would lead the impression that there was a tax to be paid. And uh, historically, that seems to be rather inaccurate. This is taking place, this census is taking place uh, during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Uh, otherwise known as Octavius, he takes upon himself the name of Augustus uh, as he becomes the first emperor of the Roman world. He is the nephew of Julius Caesar. He reigns from 27 BC to 14 AD, a rather long and a illustrious career. He was indeed perhaps one of the better, uh, if you could use that term, uh, Caesars that the Romans had. And it appears that approximately about every 10 years, uh, the Romans went through this period of registration where various folks would have to come, uh, not necessarily of the entire realm, but in this case, it appears it was that uh, Caesar Augustus desired to know how many were indeed under his reign and under his dominion. And so we know it's during a 10-year time period. It uh, historically would fall somewhere around 
8 to 4 B.C., uh, using the inaccuracies of our calendars. There is also a season that is indicated when this announcement comes. We can kind of give it a, a time frame as far as years uh, in the larger segment, but we can narrow this down because we are told that the announcement comes to shepherds who are keeping watch over their flocks by night. <coughs> if shepherds are out in the fields, it would be an indication that this is not the winter season. And so you say, well, how in the, why in the world then are, do, do we celebrate the, the 25th of December, which is in the midst of the winter season? Tomorrow it's uh, supposed to be about 14 degrees. Now just imagine, if you would, uh, the temperatures do not vary that much between here and, and Israel in the winter season, so I'm told. So it's cold. Why would you be out in a field with your sheep in the midst of the cold of the winter? That would not make much sense. There is not much food available in the winter season. So the whole thing just tells us something went terribly wrong here. And what went wrong is the fact that it wasn't until the 4th century uh, when Emperor Constantine, in order to give uh, some sort of credence uh, to uh, the Christian church, changes or establishes, I think would be the better way of putting it, the date of December 25 to coincide with a pagan festival uh, that has to do with the winter solstice, which we uh, just went through December 21st, the shortest day of the year. So it, it sort of kind of uh, was an attempt to segue from a pagan celebration to establishing it as a Christian celebration, and that tradition has stuck, although it certainly was very historically inaccurate to do so. We also know that the coming of Jesus is indicated to us by the uh, John the Baptist who tells us from the first time that, that he sees him that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is already an indication that Christ comes as the Lamb, as the Passover Lamb. That's why his death is going to coincide with the Jewish celebration of Passover. It would seem likely then that God would have his son, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, born in a season of the year as well in which the Passover lambs are born, which is in the springtime. But if you read the requirements of the Passover Lamb carefully that are given to us in the book of Exodus, what we find is this. That it didn't say that the Passover lamb had to be exactly one year old. But that the Passover lamb had to be at least one year old. So it had to be at least a year. It could not be two years old. So somewhere in that time frame. Which would mean then that if we narrow it down. Our best way of looking at the timing of this announcement would be to say that the angel brought this glorious message, most likely either in the spring or in the fall 
of the year. Because oftentimes the summer is far too warm uh, to be out in the fields as well with sheep. So we, we have some sort of an idea as to when this took place in a general way. But we also know one other thing about the timing of this. The announcement takes place after the birth. They might say, well, of course, he, he says, for to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The baby has been born. But I want you to go back. Where are the shepherds? They're out in the field. What time is indicated in the passage? It is night. Now you have to readjust your clock. For us, okay, to hear that today a child has been born, we have a certain conception of what that means. But for a Jewish person to hear today a child has been born and that announcement is made to you at night means this. That the child was born after 6 p.m. Because it is at 6 p.m. that the today begins. So you can't have a today the next day. So at 6 p.m. a child is born. Christ is born after that 6 p.m. But it has to be before 6 a.m. because the announcement is made to shepherds at night. You say, okay, what's the big deal? Well, just stop and think as to when you might have thought Jesus was born. And what then separates Christmas Eve from Christmas Day? See, we, we, we once again fail to understand the historical setting in which Christ is born. Where we try to take modern ideas, our modern way of telling time, our modern calendar, and we seek to impose that upon God's word. Rather than simply letting God's word inform us. Jesus was born sometime after 6 p.m., and sometime before 6 a.m. That's when the angel comes. In a season of the year in which shepherds are keeping watch over flocks by night in the fields. Sometime during the census that is taken under Caesar Augustus. All of that can be summarized in the words that the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Galatians that we've been studying. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. We know so little. We can't, we can't narrow down the time of day. We can't really narrow down the season of the year. We can't even narrow down the year. But in the fullness of time, God knew and knows the exact moment of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And as that moment comes, as the child is delivered, an angel is sent forth to announce the birth of his son into this world. We know so little. And yet it was in the fullness of time, at the exact moment, the exact year, at the exact season, that God brought his son into this world. Secondly, there is a uniqueness of the message. It's unique because of the setting. Go down to verse 9 of Luke 2. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Not the glory of the angel. It's not the angel's glory. It's not the angels shining brightly. It's not the appearance of the angel that the shepherds are in fear of. What does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with, we don't know how the angel made this appearance. We don't know in what manner. That's not the focus. The focus is on that the glory of the Lord appeared around them. We get a little hint of that glory when we go back to Exodus chapter 40 and, and we read of, of the glory of the Lord entering into the tabernacle after it had been set up. We get a little hint of that glory when we read that after Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, his face was glowing so brilliantly that he has to wear a veil over it because the people could not stand to look at him because of the brilliance. The glory of the Lord shone round them, not just in a cloud that came and into the tabernacle, not just in the face of Moses, but the glory, the brilliance, the majesty, the pure holiness of God is shining around them. Wherever they look, it's not just in one locality. See, it's not centered in the angel. And what a picture that is, isn't that? What a descriptive way Luke has of of putting before us in our minds, in our thoughts, that which is taking place, that the sovereign rule of God, that the glory and holiness of God is everywhere. It's not limited. It's not small. It cannot be contained. But God's glory shone all around them. Certainly there has never been a setting in which an angel was sent to make an announcement set as, such as this setting. It makes this unique. Unique in a sense that God himself is setting this apart. I am doing something here that calls for your full attention. My glory is not dwelling just within a tent. 
My glory is not just reflected in the face of Moses. My glory is not just present in the building of the temple. My glory is everywhere. And it's only in the aspect of that glory that is everywhere, that's shown all around them. It's only in that setting that God deemed it appropriate to announce the birth of his son. It's interesting, but we've been at, at Walker Meadows last week at Metron. I had the opportunity to lead a service at Fountain View this week. When you look at verses 1 through 7 of Luke chapter 2, nobody speaks. Nobody talks. Luke's just narrating. Here are the events. This is what's happening. This is what's taking place. And, and as these events happen, there is, there is sort of a stillness. There is a quietness. It's almost like there is, there is as we approach this birth, there is a holy silence taking place. But once the child is born, we light up the sky with the glory of God and we send an angel to announce its birth. Such was the heart of God. Such was the mind of God. Such was the will of God. And as we'll look at tonight, such was the grace of God. And the love of God to send forth his son. And he's announcing it. He's announcing it. With his glory shining all around them. And with his own angelic messenger coming forth with the news. The second thing that makes this message unique in terms of its setting is that it was to shepherds, defiled, unworthy, sinners, considered by the Jews to be ceremonially unclean, and yet it is to the least of these that Jesus has come, the news of his birth. Jesus is later going to say out of his own mouth that I have come for sinners. So where would we expect the first announcement to come? Oh, in our humanity, in our humanness, we might say, well, maybe to the priest, maybe to the Jewish leaders, maybe to Herod, maybe Caesar Augustus needs a good dose of this. It's to shepherds. There weren't many classes of people lower than shepherds on the scale. Their opinion mattered so little that even if they were to witness a crime, they were not allowed in a Jewish court to offer testimony. It didn't mean anything. Do you ever wonder, as you read through the passage, when you get to the part 
For it says, verse 17, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but nobody goes. We don't read of any other visitors. Shepherds are going around announcing, Christ, the Savior, has been born. Wouldn't you think if you were a citizen of Bethlehem, you would have journeyed there? You would have gone to see? Why doesn't anybody come? Because it came out of the mouth of shepherds. To such, the news comes. amazing thing this is. What a glorious reminder of grace, is it not? That he reaches to the most defiled. Reached my heart. Reached your heart. The uniqueness of the setting. Not only in the, the glory of not only that it, the fact that it's to these shepherds, but that it's near Bethlehem that this all takes place. On nobody's radar screen. Micah already told us that, didn't he? Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Though you are least amongst the clans of Judah. You're nobody. You're obscure. You're unimportant. You're well forgotten. Even when those wise men come and ask, where is he? They, they have to search the scriptures. I don't know. We'll have to look. Oh, it's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Why would anything like that come out of Bethlehem? See, we, we tend to prop it up and make a lot of Bethlehem. Well, we should. It's the place of Jesus' birth in that sense. But we make too much of it in an earthly sense. Thinking it was some probably big, large, industrial, big trade center, real important. Obviously, everybody just goes there waiting for some. Doesn't everybody go there to have babies so that maybe theirs will be the Messiah? No. It is indeed least. So it's here, in this forgotten of place, in this place that, that had its heyday. It had its time when David was king, but not anymore. Once again, that passage out of, out of Micah, and we would say to ourselves, but, but doesn't that passage, doesn't that give them the clue? Okay, those of you who remember your... Old Testament history, how well do the Jewish people listen to prophets? How well do they pay attention? We're, we're studying uh, Wednesday nights uh, now in the book of Jeremiah. And the people come to Jeremiah and say, Jeremiah, whatever you tell us, you know, should we go to Egypt or shouldn't we? That's pretty straightforward. Jeremiah says, don't go. They go. I mean, 
When was the last time the Jewish people listened to the voice of a prophet? So if a prophet says, out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, shall come forth one. Do you think they're paying any attention? No. Their ears are deaf. As deaf as they were when, when Jesus himself spoke to them directly. They don't listen. And it's in that sense, in this obscure place, to defiled men in the midst of the glory of God. In the fullness of time, the angel comes with his announcement. Let's look then, thirdly, at the content of the angel's message. We'll look basically at five things. We'll break it down this way. First of all, for unto you. For unto you is born. Fear not. See, fear not because I know you're afraid. Who would not be afraid in the presence of the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God? One of the last people in Scripture who saw such a scene was the prophet Isaiah. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. His response was, Lord, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. How much more so then do you think defiled shepherds thought they were undone? They're now in the holiness of God. Certainly if Nadab and Abihu are going to be fried because of their unholy act, how much they, by their unholy lives. If Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are going to be swallowed up by the earth because of their hearts of rebellion, how much more so these shepherds. Fear. Going to die. We're in the presence of God. Fear not. Because I don't bring you news of judgment. I bring you news of great joy. Now, just stop and think for a moment. If you're a shepherd out in that field, suddenly this angel is there. This glory of God shining all around. You're afraid of your physical and your spiritual life. And the angel announces to you that you have to fear not because he has news of great joy. Would not the question be, what could this possibly be? What could this news be? For sinful, defiled men such as us. What's good here? What's good? 
but today a Savior. A Savior has come. The word is used 24 times in the New Testament. And given its various context, it means one of the following. It means either a deliverer, it means a protector, or it means one who rescues. The one who is going to deliver you. The one who is going to rescue you. The one who is going to protect you and guard you. Your Savior has come. This is, this is an unimaginable event for these shepherds. They for whom there was no sacrifice that could be given. They who were not allowed to present an offering to the Levites to be, to be given for their sins. These men who are not even allowed to come near the temple. These men. To these men, a rescuer, a deliverer, a protector has come. One who will save them from their defilement. One who will rescue them from their sins. One who will guard and protect them and keep them forever and ever. So that no one can snatch them out of his hand. To these men, a Savior, this is news of great joy. This is indeed a turn of events. This is a reason to put their fear behind them. And to have their lives filled with this joy. A Savior has been born. A Savior has entered into the world. A Savior has come into the world. A Savior has been delivered into the world. He's come. It's not He will be coming. Oh man, they had that message for years and years and years. We've had that message, have we not, since the Garden of Eden. This promised Savior has been promised for thousands and thousands of years. This promised Savior. This longed for, hoped for Savior. Not is coming, not will come, but has come. He's already here. He is already present. He is already alive. He is already at work. For you see, this too, this birth too, is part of his saving work. His taking on human flesh. His becoming one of us. 
He's part of that work of salvation. Today he's been born. Your Savior is here and is already at work. He is Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Anointed One. We might well ask how much the, the shepherds understood all of this and for that, I, I am not quite sure. I'm not sure how much they, they grasp of the fact that he is Christ the Lord, meant that this is the second person of the Trinity, that this is the Son of God, that this is God himself in flesh. I'm not sure how much theologically they understood it, but they certainly understood it prophetically. They understood the prophecies that have been made about the one who was to come. And that, in essence, is what the angel is announcing. He is announcing to them that the one of prophecy, the Emmanuel, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, has come. The root out of the stump of Jesse has come. The one, the king out of the line of David has come. And that's all they need to know. How much more, how much more have we been blessed with? How much more information God has given to us? These men are operating without Matthew through Revelation. And yet, they recognize the significance of those words. That Christ has been born. You and I have that full revelation of God that has been given to us. And the question could well be asked, do we recognize it? Do we see it? What do you see in the child of Bethlehem? Who are you beholding? What are you spending your day doing today? Are you spending it recognizing Christ the Lord? Or is your, your mind all about getting out of here, getting to a meal, getting to some presents? Is that what it's all about for you? then I would say to you and declare to you that you are worse off than the shepherds of old. Because at least the shepherds recognized the news that the angel is bringing. But I think sometimes one of the most underthought of parts of the angel's message is this. You will find him. You, you shepherd, you will find him. Not maybe, not possibly, not if you really think about it really hard, not if you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, you will find him. 
And here's the only sign you need. This is it. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's all you need to know. I think I mentioned either last year in a sermon or a couple of years ago, that's all the clue they needed. Because those swaddling cloths are that which are used to wrap the Passover lambs in so that they would not injure themselves when they first begin to walk. See, these shepherds know right where to go. They know they need to go to the place of the Passover lamb. They, need, they know they need to go to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You will find him. In fact, Jesus is going to say later on, to all who seek me shall find me. There is none. There is none who in seeking him will not find him. That's the glorious promise. And so the question is, who are you seeking today? And will you find him? Will you find your Lamb of God? Will you find your Passover sacrifice? The shepherds did. And they returned glorifying and praising God. And telling all, telling all they met. Are you? You going to tell anybody today? You going to tell anybody tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday? Somebody says to you, how was your Christmas? What's your answer? How, how do you answer that question? How was your Christmas? Oh, we had a, a great time together as family. Well, that's nice. Did you have a good Christmas? Oh, yeah, I got a lot of good gifts. Well, that's nice too. Did you have a good Christmas? Oh, yeah, we had a great meal. Well, that's not bad either. But you know, maybe that person who's asking you about your Christmas, maybe they just need to hear, my Christmas was full of joy because I found my lamb. I found my sacrifice. I found my hope. I found my peace. I found my joy. May God be praised by our witness of Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the blessing that it is. It always challenges us, always gets us our minds thinking in new and different ways. And that's not bad, that's good. We, we, we need to be challenged from perhaps traditional ways of thinking that really are not biblical at all. But Father, what you really need to do with your word is to stir our souls 
And what a blessing it is to know that as your word is preached, as your word is proclaimed, that your Holy Spirit does indeed work within hearts. Father, I can testify this morning that that it spoke to at least one heart. It speaks to mine. It speaks of the wonder of your grace of coming to us as that lamb. Father, what a blessing it is. And it is out of that context that we can say, how great our joy. And God's people say, Amen.